Hey, Northridge, how are you guys? My name is uh, Pete, and I'm actually a pastor down in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Oh, that's, we got three country music fans. That's great. Your pastor, you know, is a huge country music fan. Uh, and that's why I'm here, really. Uh, now, it, it's an honor to be here with you guys. I want to welcome all the campuses as well as those of you watching online. We're glad you're with us. Uh, if you happen to have a Bible with you, you can turn to Genesis 37. We'll get there uh, in a few minutes. Um, I want to tell you, it really is an honor to, to be here uh, while uh, Pastor Brad is still out on his study break. Um, I, I admire this church so much. Uh, it's just amazing the history and the story of this place, how God is using you guys, uh, not only to impact this area, but the whole state, you know, the country, the world, the impact that you guys are having is, is unbelievable. And so um, I just want to thank you guys for the inspiration that you are. Uh, I was uh, in Ohio earlier this week and uh, meeting with a pastor who's, uh, he actually pastors a church my grandfather pastored in Toledo, Ohio for over three decades. And they're going through a lot of transitions and he's kind of frustrated as a leader, but this church is his inspiration. And watching how God is using you guys, how he's used you over the past years is kind of what keeps him going. So just know that uh, you guys are, are really impacting a lot of people. Pastor Brad has poured into his life and so many other pastors' lives. And it really uh, is an honor to be here. I love Michigan. I, it's a bummer you have to drive through the state of Ohio to get here. Um, <laughs> yeah. Y'all are crazy. I, I can say that because my family's from Toledo. And so uh, I grew up uh, my, spending, you know, holidays and summers and stuff in Toledo with my grandparents and all my family uh, still live there, although I was born in Nashville. So it's, it's fun to see that little rivalry uh, continue. So let's talk uh, about Joseph today. Uh, he's this guy in the Bible. And he's someone who, I don't know, for whatever reason, I've always admired Joseph. I've admired his life. I've admired his, his faithfulness, his integrity. And uh, I see a lot of my own life in his, not necessarily in the wise decisions he's made. I'd like a little more of that. But in the up and down. His, his whole life is this... Uh, really good news, bad news story. And like, you know, something goes well in his life and then all of a sudden, boom, it takes this dramatic turn and it seems like it's all falling apart. And my guess is, as we kind of walk through his story today, that there'll be a lot of you guys who can really identify with this story and really connect with it because this has kind of been the story of your life. Your life has been very much a good news, bad news kind of story. So I thought it would be fun if you guys helped me tell the story. And so I just want to make this a, a little interactive. And, um, and so you guys are going to help me. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to split this room into two halves. All right. So everybody sitting to my right, when I point to you guys, you're going to say good news because you're good news. All right. So let's practice. One, two, three. You got it. All right. Now, everybody over here, by default, all right, you guys are bad news. Don't take it personally, all right? It just happens to be where you're sitting. But when I point to you, you're going to say bad news. One, two, three. Okay, you guys got this down, all right? So uh, Joseph's story, when you, when you kind of pick it up in Scripture, one of the very first things we read is that he is his daddy's favorite, which would be, yes, it'd be good news. But we also read that his brothers hate him, which would be, right. Uh, we read that his dad makes him this really cool coat, which would be, but his brothers rip it off of him, beat him up, uh, throw him in a pit, sell him into slavery, and pretend like he's dead, uh, which would be? 
Very bad news. But he goes to work for a guy by the name of Potiphar. Now, Potiphar is this uh, high-ranking Egyptian official. The Bible says that Joseph has a tremendous amount of success underneath Potiphar. Plus, the Bible tells us, it's just kind of odd, that Joseph is very good-looking. He's a good-looking dude, kind of like Keith Urban, who my wife thinks is incredibly good-looking. Uh, but who in real life is actually one inch shorter than I am? Uh, which is what? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But uh, because he's so good looking, Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, which would be? Yes. But he resists her, which is? But uh, she makes up this false claim that he rapes her and he's thrown into prison, which would be? Yeah. You kind of get the idea, right? This is his life. It's good news. It's bad news. It's up and it's down. Now, what's interesting to me, because we all face these times, maybe it's not quite as dramatic as Joseph, but we all go through these seasons of good news, bad news. And the million dollar question, I think, and I've faced this in in my own life, is how how are we to respond, right? How do we respond when we transition from the, you know, good news, everything is going great in our life, it could not get any better than this, to one of those seasons where it feels like the carpet has been ripped out from underneath you. You know, it feels like nothing's going right and your whole life is falling apart. How are we to respond as people who claim to be followers of Christ? I know not all of you do, but a vast majority of you say, yes, I, I, I'm a follower of Christ. I, I, I want to live my life as much like Jesus as possible. The question is, how do we respond when life feels like it's falling apart? And the thing that I really want to try to get you guys thinking about, regardless of where you are in your faith journey today, is what would you do in your life if you were absolutely confident that God was with you? Like, what would you do right now in your current circumstances if you were absolutely confident that God was with you? Right? What, what would you do in, in the midst of your situation? I mean, maybe for you, you finally got the job that you wanted. You've been praying about this job for years. Everything's going great, and all of a sudden they announce they have to downsize, and you're cut. What do you do if you're absolutely confident God's with you in that situation? Maybe you're stuck in a marriage that is not anything like you expected it was going to be. And and you're scared, and you feel absolutely alone. You would love to just run and get away, but what do you do? Right? What do you do in a marriage like that if you're absolutely confident God is with you? Maybe for you, you went for a routine checkup and they told you, you know, all your levels are off and maybe it's cancer, they don't know. They're going to like, what do you do, right? If you're absolutely confident God is with you in that situation. How, how, do, you, how do you respond to that? I mean, maybe for you, your, your only dream in your life has been to get married. And for whatever reason, that just hasn't worked out. Or maybe your dream has been to have children and you haven't been able to have children. Like, what do you do in those situations if you're absolutely confident that God is with you. And that's what I want us to do is just look at this story of Joseph's life because as we kind of walk through this story, I think you'll start to see some things that maybe you can pull out of here and maybe you can apply to your current uh, situation, all right? So Genesis 37, let's just start there and I'll kind of read through some different sections of the story. We'll start in verse three. It says, now Israel, that's his dad, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. He made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So you can tell right from the beginning, I mean, this is a messed up family. It's one of the things I love about the Bible. Like, if you think your family's jacked up, just read the Bible. 
I mean, there's some messed up families in, the, in, the, in this book, and this is one of them. And so you got a father who favors one particular son, so all the other sons are extremely jealous. The favored son, Joseph, is probably a little bit of a brat, maybe a little bit arrogant. So just weird family dynamics going on here. You get down to verse 23, and this is where things kind of explode. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe the richly ornamented robe that he was wearing, and they took him and they threw him into the cistern. So right, right off the bat, again, it's just kind of messed up. Now, this, this is a key moment in Joseph's life. When he's thrown into the cistern, this is like the moment for him where he realizes that, hey, you know what? Maybe life isn't going to turn out the way I thought life was going to turn out. Right? Because up to this point, he's the favored son. He gets whatever he wants. But now all of a sudden his brothers have beat him up, they've thrown him into a pit, and I, I just kind of picture him in the bottom of the well banging his head up against the wall saying, why me? See, it's very frustrating to us, okay, when life doesn't turn out the way we want life to turn out because most of us live with this illusion that we have control, right? You, you kind of view your life like, um, you know those little marionette puppets? The little wooden puppets had the strings that ran down to them. That's kind of how you view your life. And you think you have this string that runs to your finances and you have a string that runs to your marriage and you have a string that runs to your kids and you have a string that runs to your career and that you're kind of the one that's manipulating all these things. And if you do enough good things, if you pray enough, if you work hard enough, that you can manipulate and control all these different aspects of your life to get them to perform in the way you want them to perform. But the reality is you will have a moment, just like Joseph did, where you realize that control is probably the greatest of all illusions. It's the greatest of all illusions. You'll have a moment, just like Joseph, where you're sitting there and you're saying, why me? And you'll probably be laying in a bed, staring up at the sky, just saying, God, why me? Like, why my marriage? And why my finances? And, and why my children? Why my health? Like, why me? Like, wh what did I do to deserve this? Why, why am I going through this? That's where Joseph's at. Now, what's interesting to me is that for most of us, all right, regardless of where you are, in spiritual maturity, whether you're not a Christian, whether you are a Christian, and maybe you've been a Christian for five years, or maybe you've been a Christian for 50 years, regardless of where you are, I've seen this in, in uh, uh, all people, that when life doesn't turn out the way you want it to turn out, we almost always jump to the conclusion that God's not with us, right? God doesn't know, and God doesn't care, and God has abandoned us, but we feel like we're all alone, and what's interesting to me about that is that it completely contradicts God's word. Because if you look at the Bible, if you know anything about the Bible from cover to cover, almost every single story, a central theme throughout this entire book is that God is most powerfully present, even when it seems like he's most apparently absent. That he's there and that he's working in your life. And even though you can't see him or feel him, and when you look at the circumstantial evidence of your life feels as if you are all alone. The reality is the Bible teaches that you're not, that he is with you. And if you don't get anything else from today, that's my prayer for you, is that you'll walk away today, regardless of what's going on in the circumstances of your life, realizing that there's a God who loves you. There's a God who is powerfully present in the midst of whatever it is that you're going through. He is working in your life. And somehow, I don't, I don't know exactly how, but somehow Joseph got that. 
So we get to chapter 39. It says, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. This is where he's been sold into slavery, right? Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. Now, this is interesting, this phrase, the Lord was with Joseph. Really? Because I thought he just got beat up by his brothers. The Lord is with Joseph? What? Like, I thought he was just sold into slavery. See, I grew up um, in, in church, and somehow I got this idea. I don't know if the church taught this or if I just made this up or what. But I grew up with the idea that if the Lord was with you, it meant that um, things pretty much went the way you wanted them to go. Right? If the Lord's with you, um, it means that your parents don't get a divorce. If the Lord's with you, this means you get into like the college of your choice. If the Lord's with you, you get to marry the dream guy or the dream girl. If the Lord's with you, you get the corner office. Right? If the Lord's with you, marriage is just easy. Right? If the Lord's with you, things just kind of work out the way that they should work out. The problem with that idea, and there's a lot of us who carry that idea around, is that it's just nowhere in the Bible. It's just not there. But what we do begin to see is that how we respond to, I call them plan B's, all right? How we respond to crisis, how we respond to adversity, how we respond when life does not turn out the way we want life to turn out is extremely important. And what we're going to see all the way through Joseph's life is regardless of what was going on in his life, he responded in that situation as anybody would respond that is absolutely confident that God is with them. I mean, look at Joseph. Here he is, he's been sold into slavery, he's been beat up, he's been rejected by his family, he's not complaining, he's not trying to escape. It's just every day, he just gets up and he does what anybody would do if they were absolutely confident that God is with them. All right, so we keep going, verse six, it says, so he left in Joseph's care everything that he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except for the food that he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome, kind of like Keith Urban. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and he said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in this house. Everything that he owns, he's entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except for you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against my God? This is a, this is a crazy, like, cool moment right here. Because in, in my book, this situation alone makes Joseph a hero. And somehow Joseph, in this unbelievably tempting situation, um, this is Joseph with no church. This is Joseph with no accountability group. This is Joseph, he doesn't even have the Ten Commandments yet. And somehow he says, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against my God? Who, by the way, has not done a whole lot for me lately. Right? How, how could I do a thing like that? Now, you know what I get from this part of the story? Is you don't ever want to abandon your God-given values and the pursuit of your God-given dreams. And you will be tempted over and over and over again in your life to do that. Because, like, you have these dreams, right? You, some of you have the dream to get married. Some of you have the dream to have kids. Some of you have the dream to make a certain amount of money. Maybe you have a dream to do something in your career. You, you have all kinds of dreams that, that God gives you. He plants them in your heart. Along the way in life, when those dreams aren't happening in the way you want the dream to happen, there then begins this temptation to abandon God-given values in the pursuit of the God-given dream. Let, let's take Joseph. 
for instance. Don't you think it's quite possible that Joseph in this situation, right? God's given him a dream. His dream is, number one, he's going to be free. Number two, he's going to be a great leader. All right, he's going to be in charge of this nation. And, and Joseph knows this. He has this dream burning on his heart. The reality is that life isn't turning out so well right now, but he still has this dream that God's given him. Don't you think when his boss's wife begins to seduce him, that it was possible that Joseph started to think, well, maybe this is God's plan. Maybe this is what God wants. Maybe I'm, I'm supposed to sleep with my boss's wife because if I sleep with my boss's wife, then I would have leverage. Then I would have some power. Then maybe I could convince her to convince him to let me go and I would be free and I could begin to live the life that God's called me to live. Right? You see, this is how the human heart, how the human mind tends to work. We begin to rationalize things. So for some of you, you have this God-given dream. You want the dream so bad that what happens is you begin to pursue the dream. You begin to pursue the ambition instead of pursuing God himself. The problem with that is this. Your dream, no matter how great it is, will always make a lousy God. Always. Never pursue your dreams and your ambitions ahead of God himself. But let's be honest, okay? Because I know Northridge is the kind of church where we can like just be honest with each other. Isn't it hard to remain faithful to God when you feel as if God hasn't been faithful to you? It's tough, isn't it? I mean, that's when we want to kind of abandon things and we want to kind of take things under our control. Look what happens in Joseph's life. This is unbelievable. Verse 10, it says, And though she spoke to Joseph day after day. This is important, a whole different message, but it's important to know that when you're facing temptation, when you walk away from the temptation, it's still relentless. It's still there. It doesn't mean the temptation just goes away. This is day after day. He refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants were inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and he ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. Now, if you know the story, you know what happens next. He's framed and he's sentenced to prison for the exact same thing he had the integrity and the strength to run away from in the first place. Have you ever had that happen? Like you're doing the right things, you're doing what you feel God's called you to do, and you're going to church, and you're giving, and you're praying, and you're, like, you're doing all the right things, and still life doesn't turn out the way you want it to turn out. Right, if you're Joseph, isn't this when you'd be like, well, I, well why do I even pray? Why, why, why am I even a Christian? Why am I gonna continue to do all the right things? If I'm going to be falsely accused, I'm going to be thrown into prison anyway. Like, what is the point? And and I think, and again, I I can't speak for you guys. This is just for myself. What often happens for me in my relationship with God is I begin to view him kind of like this cosmic vending machine. And and I begin to, to think that God kind of exists to meet my needs, right? And then, like, all the church stuff I do, like, the praying or the fasting or the being part of Bible studies, all of that stuff, I do that stuff and that kind of becomes the currency that I then use with God to get from him what it is that I really want in life. But what we read throughout the Bible is that we're called to be faithful to God. 
even when it seems like he hasn't been faithful to us, we're called to love him even when it feels like he's abandoned us. We're called to serve him even in the darkness. We're called to worship him even through the tears. I have um, three boys. They are Jet, Gage, and Brewer. And I love these boys with all my heart, but they, they're wild. Um, we, we actually only brought one with us because we didn't think Northridge could handle all three of them. Um, and like, you know how sometimes like you'll be out in public with your kids or with your grandkids and um, like complete strangers will come up to you and be like, oh my gosh, like what's your secret? Like your kids are so well behaved. Well, um, no one has ever come up and said that to me. <laughs> Not one time. Uh, that's never happened. I, here's a quick story. This has nothing to do with this sermon, but this would kind of give you an idea, right, of, of my kids. So uh, one day I've got my two oldest boys at our neighborhood pool. And it's a Sunday afternoon. It's packed with all my neighbor's friends. They're all there. And um, I, I'm kind of stressed out. It's Sunday afternoon, so I'm kind of worn out. And I'm just wanting to chill out a little bit. So I've got a book. It's a Christian book, if that helps this story at all, all right? And uh, I'm sitting there reading the book. And my middle son, Gage, is driving me nuts about having to go to the bathroom, like constantly. So like five times I've taken him to go pee at the pool house which is like all the way up this hill it's a real pain to get to so like five times I'm like I'm, I'm just trying to read my really good Christian book and so um six times he comes up and he's like dad I gotta pee I'm like son are you kidding me like I need a break I just want to sit here for just like five minutes without you bothering me about having to go to the bathroom so in a weak moment I said hey Gage um this one time <laughs> Why don't you just go pee in the pool? Like, one time. <laughs> now, listen. I know that right now I am feeding all of your preconceived notions about the South, okay? <laughs> um, but I've heard that people in the North sometimes pee in the pool, too, okay? So, anyway. So, I'm like, I'm like all right. I'm, I'm, I gotta, so, I'll go back to my book. Um, 30 seconds later, I hear these gasps around the pool. Like, everybody going, oh! <gasps> I look up from my book, and there is my son, Gage, standing on the edge of the pool <laughs> with his trunks down to his ankles, peeing into the pool. I throw down my book. I run over there as fast as I can. I'm like, all right, understand by now, dead silence around the pool. Dead, there's like one little kid still in there trying to get out as fast as he can, okay? And uh, dead silence. And I, I, I get down by Gage. I said, Gage, son, like, you can't do that. He looks right back at me. He says, Dad, you told me to pee in the pool. <laughs> so we haven't gone back to the neighborhood pool uh, ever. But like that, okay, that's just, that's just like a snapshot, okay, of, of these boys and what they do to me. So uh, one night, I've got all three of them. And uh, my wife's out on a very well-deserved girls' night, and I'm watching the three boys. And my youngest brewer, he's the one that, like, the boy is a handful. Like, there are times I look at him, and I understand why some species of, of animals eat their young, all right? And so uh, he, he's pretty content this night because I'm feeding him. Uh, he loves these um, little plastic bags, little, uh, uh, like, fruit gummy things, little fruit snacks. There are no fruit in them, but they're in the shape of fruit. And so uh, I'm just feeding them one after another, and so he's pretty content. But eventually I realized, whoa, like, 
he's had too many. Like, I got to cut the boy off. And so uh, I go to take him away. So I take the fruit snacks away. And, like, he throws this fit, the screaming fit. Like, he's screaming and crying. He's on the ground, like, arching his back. So I just, like, pick him up. I'm like, bro. Like, I'm not really holding him. I'm kind of constraining him. And, um, and, he's, and he starts screaming, I want my mommy. I want my mommy. I want my mommy. I'm thinking, I want your mommy too, okay? But... <laughs> He keeps screaming this over and over, and it hits me, right? Um, he doesn't really want his mommy. What he wants is what he thinks his mommy might give him, which in this case would be more fruit snacks. And as soon as that thought crossed my mind, I, I felt like God impressed on me. And I've never, like, heard God's voice. I'd like to just, like, one time. That would be really cool. But uh, I felt God impress on me and say, hey, Pete, doesn't that so represent your relationship with me? Because so much of your so-called praying to me and so much of your so-called worship to me and so much of your so-called crying out to me isn't really because you want more of me. It's because you want more of what you think I might give you. And I got to tell you, like, I, I'm not there yet. I'm really not. But I want to get to that place in my life where I can honestly say, you know what, if God doesn't give me one more thing, I still owe him everything. If God doesn't give me one more additional gift in my life, I still owe him everything. And see, somehow Joseph got this. His life is falling apart, but he understands that he only has one responsibility. And it's not somehow to manipulate his circumstances to get them to go the way he wants them to go. His responsibility is not to somehow try to manipulate, manipulate God like he's some kind of cosmic vending machine to get God to give him what he wants. He understands his responsibility in this situation is just to do what anybody would do that is absolutely confident that God is with them. And that's what he does. So we get to chapter 40, and let me just kind of sum up, kind of wrap this talk up. Um, chapter 40, he's in prison for something he didn't do. The Bible says he makes two friends. Uh, there's a baker and there's a wine tester. They both have dreams and they come to Joseph to interpret the dreams. God's given Joseph this really cool gift. He can interpret dreams, say what, you know, what they mean. And so uh, they come. The baker's dream, we don't have time to cover it. It didn't turn out so well anyway. Uh, the wine tester has this amazing dream. And Joseph says, okay, like I can interpret this dream. What this dream means is that in three days, three days, you're going to get set free from prison. So everybody's celebrating, the wine tester's celebrating, Joseph's celebrating because Joseph is thinking in the back of his head, this is my shot, right? This is it. I figured it out. This is how God is going to finally set me free to live the life he has for me. You know, the wine tester's going to get out and, and he's going to have the power to get me out. We know this because in Genesis 40, verse 14, Joseph says this. In verse 14, he says this to the wine tester. He says, when all goes well with you, just remember me, show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh, get me out of this prison, for I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. So this is just Joseph saying, hey, just, just one thing. Just remember me. You ever been at that place in your life where you're like, God, I, I just need one thing. Hey, God, just this one Thing, just like if you could make my husband love me like he used to love me. God, just this one thing, like my kids are making some horrible decisions. If you could just bring them back to you, 
God, just this one thing, like our finances are so messed up and you could fix it all. Like, God, just this one time. God, just this one thing, right? Just heal me of this cancer. Just this one thing. Several years ago, uh, my wife was pregnant. We were told um, at like 13, 14 weeks that more than likely our baby would not survive, that the baby would not be able to live outside of the womb. So uh, it was like just a real shocking, difficult time. We started to pray for a miracle. Our entire church started praying for a miracle. We really believed God was going to do a miracle. And every week we had to go to the doctor and they would do an ultrasound and they would measure the length of his uh, legs and the length of his arms and measure the circumference of his head. They do all these little tests. And every week, you know, we would go in and just hold our breath like, please, God, please just do a miracle. And we really, we expected that. Like every week we kind of were waiting for the doctor to say like, well, we can't explain it. This is crazy, but he's fine. And uh, we're in there one particular week and I can tell like the nurse is, you know, just kind of frantic and I can tell something's wrong and I'm like firing questions at her and she's like, sorry, doctor has to answer your questions. And, you know, I I bug her enough. Finally, she's like, I'm having a hard time finding the heartbeat. She's like, don't don't worry. Sometimes it's just like the way the baby turns. Um, She said, I'm going to get the doctor. So she walks out and she walks out of the room and man, I just felt this unbelievable weight. And so I started to pray my one prayer, which was, God, heal our son. Like, God, I know that you can do this. There are thousands of people that are are praying for this. Like, even if his heart isn't beating, like, God, right now, I, I know that you could breathe life and air into the lungs of this child. Like, I know. I've seen you work miracles. I know that you can do this. And I just prayed it over and over and over. And the doctor came in. He wasn't there for a minute. And he said, I'm sorry to tell you, but um, your child did not survive. There is no heartbeat. And I'll never forget the look of pain in my wife's eye. And being able to stand there completely helpless not able to do anything. And um, I remember being so confused and angry, embarrassed. Like, how am I going to tell thousands of people that God didn't show up in the way we thought he was going to show up? And that began for me weeks and months uh, for both my wife and I of just trying to make sense of a God that we know is all-loving and also all-powerful. And yet, for whatever reason, didn't show up in the way that we wanted him to show up. And I think about Joseph. Here's Joseph. I mean, his life's a wreck. And he, he just says, you know, just this one thing. Can the wine tester, can the chief cupbearer, can he just, just remember me? And, I, you know, I, I would assume the chief cupbearer is like, well, yeah, of course, Joseph, I'm going to remember you. After everything you've done for me, of course I'll remember you. But we get down to verse 23 in this chapter. It's like the most depressing verse in the Bible. Like nobody's memorizing this verse. Nobody puts this one on the fridge, okay? Verse 23, it says, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Right? So if you're Joseph, aren't you like, are you kidding me, God? 
after everything I've been through, after everything I've done? Are you kidding me? Like, I I have followed you. I've had faith in you. I've had integrity and walked away from temptation. I've done everything that you've asked for me to do. And all I asked for was for the chief cupbearer to remember me. And he forgets. Have you ever been there in your life? Sure you have. See, the reality is right now, there's hundreds of people who call Northridge home that are absolutely haunted by the fact that God could have done something in your life, but for whatever reason, he chose not to. And you don't talk about it a lot because you're afraid people are going to think that, you know, you don't have enough faith and all kinds of things. But it's kind of this thing that really keeps you from growing into an intimate relationship with God. You go through all the motions and you're part of the Bible studies and you come to church and you worship and you have a smile on your face. But deep down inside, there's still that thing that haunts you where you think, why didn't God do something? Right? Because he could have. God could have kept your child from being in that car accident. God could have kept you from getting cancer. God could have kept you from going bankrupt, right? You know this. You've seen God work miracles before, but you're haunted by why did he not do what I wanted him to do? And this is a big deal, and I think it's a crossroads for many of us in the Christian faith. And it's what keeps a lot of us from being fully abandoned, living our lives for him. Because we just haven't come to grips with that why. And... The bummer news for you today is that I don't know that I have an answer for why God didn't show up in the way that you wanted him to show up. But what I'm progressively learning in my own life is that there's a huge difference. And you you have to make this decision for your life. There's a huge difference between putting your faith in God's identity, who God says that he is, and putting your faith in God's activity all right, or God's circumstances, which is what you see with the human eye. And a vast majority of people who call themselves Christians do this. They put their faith in God's circumstances, in the circumstances of their life. Now, the problem with that is, is this, that life is a good news, bad news story, right? It's not that dissimilar from Joseph. The reality is your life, if we could chart it out, looks like this. It's full of good news, bad news. Now, if you attach your faith to God's circumstances or the circumstances of your life, the reality is your faith is going to follow that same path, right? Good news, bad news, up and down. So one moment you're on fire for God. Here I am. Here's all of me. Take all of me. I'm yours. All the way down to, oh, I don't even know if I really believe in God anymore. This isn't the way I thought that it was going to be. You see what I'm saying? It's just up and down, up and down. You've wondered, why is my faith so hot and cold, hot and cold? Because your faith's in God's circumstances. Now, if your faith is in God's identity, here's where unbelievable spiritual growth takes place. Right? When we transition, our faith is in God's identity. Our faith is in who God says that he is. Not just what we see and we experience with our human eyes. So when my faith is in God's identity, even when I feel like God's not with me, even when I feel like God's abandoned me, my faith is in his identity. In other words, my faith is in who he says that he is. And God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So in the moments like that doctor's office for me, where it felt like the whole world was falling apart, I could say, God, I don't get this. And I feel like you've abandoned me. But I know that your word says you will never leave me. You will never forsake me. So I don't understand this. I don't get this. But I know that you are with me. 
So when you have moments in your life where you feel like God doesn't know and God doesn't care, if your faith is in his identity and who he says that he is, then you'll know that God says in his word, I know how many hairs are on your head. I know every tear you have ever cried. And so even though you feel like God doesn't know and God doesn't care, you can say to yourself, I don't get this, I don't understand this, but I know, I trust, I have faith in a God who knows how many hairs are on my head. He knows every tear I've ever cried, so certainly he knows what's going on in my life. And my prayer for you today, and I, I, listen, I don't, I don't want to minimalize this. I don't think that this is like an easy decision. I think that for me in my own life, this has taken a lot of practice. And I occasionally want to try to revert back to my faith being in God's circumstances. My challenge to you today is wherever you are, that you take a step closer towards saying, you know what, I, I understand if I'm really going to grow, if I'm really going to mature, my faith has to be in God's identity and who he says that he is. And that then gives you the strength, regardless of what's going on in your life, to do what anybody would do that is absolutely confident that God is with them. Because he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for this incredible church. And Father, today we just want to lift up um, the dozens and dozens and dozens of people that are here that are hurting. They're struggling. They feel all alone. Life's taken some kind of crazy turn and once again they find themselves full of questions and wondering why in the world an all-powerful, all-loving God would allow them to go through what they're going through. And God, we don't have any easy answers. But God, what we do know and what we can be confident of is that you are with them, that you do have a plan for their life. And we see in Joseph's life, this wasn't the end. Eventually, he would get out of prison and eventually, God, you would restore him to the dreams and the plans that you gave him, but it was in a different timing than he thought. And so today we can have hope knowing and believing that we trust in a God who does have a plan for our life. And even though we can't answer all the questions today, we can make a decision to say, you know what, I'm going to put my faith, I choose to put my faith in God's identity and who he says that he is. God, maybe there's some people here today that have never made a decision to follow you. They've never asked for your son, Jesus Christ, to come into their life. They've never asked for what Jesus did on the cross to be applied to their sin problem. And maybe today, in the middle of their crisis, you would just nudge them. Maybe today they would open up their heart and just sitting where they're sitting, they would simply pray and say, God, I want a relationship with you. And I do want to ask for what your son Jesus did on the cross to be applied to my life. And with as much as I understand about you, I want to follow you. Father God, we believe that you're doing amazing work right now in our hearts and in our lives. For it's in your son's precious name that we pray. Amen. Hey, before you guys go, I want to just point out a couple quick things. Um, got this program when you came in. And um, if you're a guest, I just want to point this out. Over on the far right is this connection card, okay? 
And there's all kinds of information uh, in this card. Uh, but what I really want to point out, two things. Number one, there's a section for prayer requests. So if you're someone that's here this weekend and you've just said, you know what, I'm going through a tough time. I'm in the midst of one of those plan B. I've got some adversities going on. That'd be a great place for you to just write that in. I'm telling you, this is such a caring church with such caring staff and they would love to pray for you. And then at the bottom, there's this little place that says, today I prayed to receive Jesus Christ in my life for the first time. And if today, maybe during that prayer, you just kind of felt that nudge from God to start a relationship with Jesus, would you just mark that there? And uh, I mean, I'm telling you, Pastor Brad would love to connect with you, send you some information just about what that means and what that looks like. So um, today when you leave, you can just take that card and there's some boxes there uh, at all the exits. You can drop it in or go by guest services and uh, you could give it to them. But it, it would be so uh, important, I know, to this church to, to be able to connect with you in that way. And I just want to encourage you as we leave today that um, God hasn't abandoned you and he never will. Now, why are you going through what you're going through? I, I don't have a clue. Um, you know, is this God's will for your life? I don't know. Is it going to be over soon? I don't know. Will how you respond to this crisis, to this adversity, make any difference? Yeah. More than you could ever imagine. So I'm praying right now you would just think and dream about what someone would do in your situation that was absolutely confident that God was with them, that you'll take a big, deep breath and that you'll step out in faith and you'll do exactly that, all right? You guys have a great weekend. Thanks.